Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 will be in verses 5 through 9 this morning. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Well, as we do every week, let me read our passage for us this morning. And then we will pause and take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, uh, you made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the great taste of death, so, by the grace of, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that stands in our place for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that is our only hope this morning as we have gathered here together. We're thankful that because of what Jesus has done in our place, you have sent your spirit to dwell within us. And Father, even as this passage will remind us this morning, we desperately need your help to keep our eyes fixed on things above where Christ is. And so, Father, I pray that your word would do that very thing within us this morning, that by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, you would fix our eyes, fix our attention, our faith, our affection on Jesus Christ, on our need for him, on what he has accomplished in our place, in our place. And so, Father, we pray that you would do uh, only what you're capable of doing this morning. None of us can change ourselves. None of us can make ourselves more righteous by the power of our will, but we need your grace and mercy to come upon us by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, to change us and transform us and conform us more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would do that very thing this morning for our good and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage, these verses, verses 5 through 9 uh, of chapter 2, is a, 
is a continuation of the argument that the author of Hebrews has been making throughout the book so far. In particular, what we looked at in chapter 2, verse 1 last week. So as we begin this morning, I just want to be sure that we can, because we, we don't want to walk up into the middle of a conversation, right? When you do that, sometimes you walk into the middle of a conversation. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what's being said, and you're completely lost as to what the people are talking about. So we need to take a few minutes just to be sure that we know where we are and know what it is that the author is saying. Some of you may not have heard last week's sermon, and even if you did, uh, we all probably need to be reminded. And so look there again with me at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 particularly chapter 2, verse 1, where the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, what we saw last week is that everything in chapter 1 leading up to that statement is, is flowing into that command that uh, the author of Hebrews gives us there in verse 1, that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And what we were told is that this message that we've heard, this message is for you and it's for me. And not only that, we were told in chapter 1 that, that in these last days that God has spoken to us by his Son. And then the author of Hebrews has expanded on the glories of who Christ is. You can see that there in chapter 1, verse 2 and following, that Jesus is the heir of all things through whom the world was created. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He has made purification for sins, and he has become much superior to the angels. And then the rest of chapter 1 is just expounding on that reality that Jesus is much more glorious, superior, and great than the angelic beings. And therefore, because he is glorious, because he is superior to the angels, because he is, in fact, the Son of God, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Not only that, then verses 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews continues to expand on why it is that we need to pay close attention to what we have heard. First, we were, uh, we were told that, look, it's, this is a great salvation. You see that there in chapter 2, verse 3? How are we going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is news of how we are saved from wrath and condemnation through the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to pay much closer attention. And then the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, we're, we're told that this message was attested to by God himself with miracles and, and wonders and signs. And so there's every reason in the world that we have to pay close attention to what has been said. We are without excuse. And verse 1 warns us that if we fail to pay much closer attention, then we risk drifting away. And we talked about just how dangerous that is, that we must give supreme attention, supreme devotion, close attention to the truth of God's word so that we don't find ourselves drifting away from Jesus. And that, of course, leads to an important question. And some of you may think, well, the answer to that question is obvious. But it, I believe it's part of the question that the author of Hebrews is asking and seeking to answer in verses 5 through 9, which is this. Why should we be concerned about drifting away from Jesus? Why is that a big deal in the first place? 
You see, for the author of Hebrews, that's the ultimate question that's at hand. He's writing to a group of Christians who are in a really difficult situation. They find themselves in the midst of persecution and hardship and suffering. In fact, the author of Hebrews details exactly what's been happening in their lives later in chapter 10. Listen to what Hebrews 10 verses 32 through 34 says. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, this was intense hardship and persecution. Just by ministering to those who had been imprisoned, the, he, the, the Hebrews that are being written to lost everything. Their property was plundered. They were suffering hardship and affliction. And what the author of Hebrews is wanting to say to them is that it's worth it. It's worth it because you have a better and a abiding possession in Jesus Christ. And that's why we should be concerned about drifting away from Jesus. That's the answer that the author of Hebrews gives us right there in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. You see, this is yet another reason why we need to pay close attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. Because it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. And what's implied in that is that world to come was subjected to Jesus Christ. That it belongs to him. That it is his. This world to come of which we are speaking. This new heavens and the new earth that one day we all will experience who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Where we will dwell with him for all eternity. Full of joy and happiness and satisfaction. This glorious world to come. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And the only way we get that world is through Jesus which is why verse 3 of chapter 2 says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It is a great, astounding, majestic salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. And there is a glorious, unimaginable world to come, and it belongs to Jesus Christ. Therefore, to show us our helplessness and our hopelessness to ever uh, trying to approach this world to come in our own strength and to show us our desperate need for a Savior to deliver us safely, what the author wants us to do here in verses 6 through 9 is to look in three directions. He wants us to look back, then he wants us to look around, and then he wants us to look up. So that's the outline of our passage this morning, that the author of Hebrews... In our anticipation of the world to come, he wants us to see our helplessness to ever get there in our own strength. And he wants to convince us that we must look to our Savior if we are going to inherit this great salvation. And so what he wants us to do is to look back to our created purpose. He wants us to look around to our failures. And then he wants us to look up to our faithful Savior. 
So let's begin by looking in the first direction. Let's look back. So we're going to see that there in verses 6 through the first half of verse 8. There in verse 6, the author of Hebrews is taking us all the way back to Psalm chapter 8. But Psalm chapter 8 actually takes us back even further to the very beginning to creation. So the author of Hebrews is wanting us to set our gaze to look back all the way, essentially, to the beginning of the creation of the world. Now we're going to look at Psalm 8 in a minute. We're going to read Psalm 8 in, in just a moment. But first I just want to clarify a few things in verses 6 through 9 because... It can be confusing, I think, on just reading it through who the different verses are talking about because the word him is used a lot. And who does, who does him refer to? Does it refer to mankind? Does it refer to Jesus? Does it refer to both? What is it that the author of Hebrews is talking about? So, so I, my understanding is, my view is that in verses 6 through 8, when the word him is used, H-I-M, it is referring to mankind. It is referring to humanity. Okay, so, so I just want you to see that. And then there's this great contrast, this transition in verse 9. And then in verse 9, but we see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So in verse 9, the author is transitioning. And there's a contrast there. And he's beginning to talk about Jesus at that point in verse 9. And I think understanding the passage in that way helps us understand the argument that the author is making. He first wants us to see clearly who we are. He wants us to see our need for Christ and then turn our attention to Jesus Christ. And the other reason I think that the word him refers to mankind in verses 6 through 8 is because that's in fact what Psalm 8 was talking about when Psalm 8 was written. So Psalm 8 is a short psalm. It's just nine verses. So let's actually take a moment just to let me read Psalm 8 for us so we have a sense of what it is the author of Hebrews is referencing. So Psalm chapter 8 says this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So Psalm 8, David wrote Psalm 8, and David sees mankind in this unique position. Mankind is to be both humbled and exalted at the very same time. So you see there in Psalm 8, he's reflecting on the wonders of creation there in Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he's saying, think of the grandeur of the universe, the expanse of the universe, right? It is, it is almost unimaginable to think of the expanse and the millions of trillions of light years of expanse of this universe that exists and the moon and the stars that Jesus set in place by his hand. And when you reflect on the glories of that universe, 
universe and the, the glories of its creator, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Now, just a quick clarification. The phrase son of man can trip us up because we often in the New Testament see Jesus referred to as the son of man. But I think here what we have in Psalm 8 verse 4 and what the author of Hebrews is quoting in Hebrews 2 is what we would call Hebrew parallelism. And that's when in Hebrew poetry, you'll have the same subject referred to two different times in two different ways, but it's talking about the same thing. And so when uh, Psalm 8 verse 4 says, what is man that you are mindful of him, mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, both phrases are talking about humanity. And so this is the humbling of humanity, right? Who are we in comparison to the glories of Christ and to the glories of the rest of creation? We seem so small and insignificant. And yet, Psalm 8 verse 5 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. And so here the author of Psalms, here David in Psalm 8 is pointing to the reality that you and I and all of humanity are created in the image of God. That we bear the image of God that no other creating, created being bears. And because of that, he, he gave us in, in the creation mandate a mission and a purpose. And he put all things under our feet. He gave us dominion. Psalm 8 says, over the sheep and oxen, the beast of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This is then what ultimately, back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, as the author of Hebrews reflects on this in the second half of verse 8, he says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, meaning to humanity, he left nothing outside his control. And this is precisely what Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says. Listen to what God said in the first moments of the creation of the world, talking about mankind. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see, we're crowned with glory and honor because we are created in the image of God and, he's, and he gave us in that original creation mandate, dominion over all things, over all the earth. We were to be uh, in the Garden of Eden. We were to be rulers of the planet. There would be no threat to our safety or to our prosperity. We were created to live in perfect harmony with God, ruling over and enjoying the beauty of his creation. There was not to be one rogue entity on, planet, on the planet Earth that would not be subject to us. Every animal would be subject to, to us. The Earth would bend to our needs and provide everything we could ever need or ever even want. Nothing on the planet would threaten us. The planet, its nature, weather, and animals were not a threat to us in any way, shape, or form. This is the original glory of creation 
for whatever period of time that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. And you see, the author wants us to look back to that time because if we don't look back and see how it was, then we won't be able to truly appreciate just how far we have fallen. Just how corrupt the world has become. The consequences of Adam and Eve choosing to listen to the serpent instead of their creator becomes even more clear. You see, I think sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking, you know, this world is it's just a little off. It just needs a little tweaking. We just, if we just get a few things right, we can bring it back to the way it should be. We just, if we just get the right laws in place, if we get the right psychology in place and the right technology and the right politics and the right government and the right people, then we can fix it. And what this reminds us is that the very order of the world is broken and corrupted. And all we have to do is look around to see it. So we have looked back to our original purpose in creation, that we were created in the image of God, that we were given dominion over all things. But now we have to look around and see our failure. We see that in the second half of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, meaning to humanity. You see, that's the call to look around, to look around at our world right now. When he says, at present, right now, look around. Things are not subjected to us. The world is broken. It is not as it should be. We are far from the world being subjected to us and serving our purposes. In fact, if you think about it, it seems that just the opposite is the case. This world routinely works against us. It is regularly working to take out as many humans as possible, right? Think about it, right? Every single year, earthquakes happen around the world, demolishing centers of population, large and small. Tsunamis wash away coastal towns and even further inland. Hurricanes rip through coastal areas. Tornadoes demolish everything in their path. Droughts drain lakes and rivers, causing famine and starvation. And there is little to nothing that we can do to stop it. Right? People even speculate, and I don't know if you've read about this, right? What if we drop some atomic bombs in hurricanes, right? That'll break them apart, and it's out in the ocean. It makes no difference, and then we don't have to worry about hurricanes anymore, right? Because you think, well, an atomic bomb could do it, right? But no, it's like it would barely put a dent in it. There's so much power and energy in a hurricane. We have no control over it. There's nothing that we can do to stop it. And of course, that's just nature and weather. Then there's bacterias and viruses and diseases that rip through population and cancer that turns our own bodies against us. And that's to say nothing of human conflict and wars and genocide and individual violent people, just as we've read in the news over this past day of another, yet another mass shooting. And the list goes on and on and on. And I think sometimes because of these little small victories that we have over a particular disease or our ability to better predict hurricanes or to better monitor tornadoes, we can somehow fool ourselves into believing that we have some level of control. 
but it's all a mirage. And even if we were, let's just speculate, even if we were somehow able to control all these external threats, like we were able to shut down hurricanes and stop earthquakes and plug up volcanoes and find a cure for every known virus and bacteria, we would yet still face the great uncontrollable enemy over which we will never have dominion and will never be subject to us, namely death. It's wired into our very DNA. In fact, I read of a recent study that figured out why different species of animals have different lifespans. Basically, that just all depends on how fast their DNA replicates. And the faster it replicates, the shorter their life is because mistakes happen in the DNA and eventually it's just too mutated for the life to carry on. Death is wired into us. Furthermore, it is the consequence of our sin that God has brought to us. And so this is the dilemma that we face. We were created in the image of God to rule over this earth with all things placed in subjection to us. But in our rebellion against God, the world is now a broken place. And even creation itself longs for the day of redemption. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You see, what the author is reminding us of is that it doesn't matter how hard we may try in our own strength. We, will we have rebelled against him. We are now under the sentence of death. The world is broken because of sin. And all we have to do is look around and see that the world is not as it was created to be originally. And so we look back. We look back at the original creation. We look around and see that it's broken. But there is yet hope for us. There's this glorious word that I love there in the, the very end of verse 8 where it says, We do not yet see, right? It's not yet. There is yet. There is hope to come. And that's why we must then finally look up to our faithful Savior. That is the final direction we must look when all seems hopeless, when all seems broken, when it seems like there is nothing that we can do to fix this world, to fix our own hearts, to fix our sin. We can look up to Jesus. You see that there in verse 9? But we see him who I love the contrast the author of Hebrews is setting up here, right? At present, we don't see everything in subjection to us, but what we do see, verse 9, what we do see is Jesus Christ. And even though we have failed to live up to how we were created to be crowned with glory and honor, instead of fulfilling that purpose, instead we, our sin broke the world, put it into subjugation to sin and darkness and to Satan, but Jesus Christ has come now, he has arrived, and he is the one who will be now crowned with glory and honor. 
But it's interesting that verse 9 says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, that's an odd phrase for many reasons, but particularly for the book of Hebrews that just spent an entire chapter telling us how much superior Jesus is to the angels, right? He's far greater. He's far superior. They serve him. He created them. He holds the angels together by the word of his power. And yet verse 9 says that Jesus was made lower than the angels. So what is the author getting at here? Well, he's using the exact same phrase, of course, that is used in verse 7, and he's doing that on purpose. And what he is saying to you and I is that Jesus became one of us. He took on flesh. And just as in our fleshly estate, we were a little lower than the angels, Jesus also in his fleshly estate is now was now at this time a little lower than the angels. When he willingly took on flesh and he came and he dwelt among us and, and it wasn't like he was, he was uh, you know, uh, uh, seen as by the world standards anyway, a great human. No, he was even lower than most other men, right? He, he came in a humble way, right? He was born to basically shins, uh, to important people. In fact, you see that, right? When they go to Bethlehem, they had no connections to say, look, we're important people. You need to find a room for us, right? There was no options like that. Instead, they said, sorry, we have no clue who you are. You don't matter to us, but you can go out to the barn if you want to and spend the night. And so Mary and Joseph, of course, as you know, the Christmas story, well, they go to the barn, they go to the stable, and that's where this glorious Christ is born, and he's laid in a feeding trough in a, in a manger. So yes, for a little while, he was lower than the angels. As he came and he dwelt among us. But of course, it was only a temporary reality. And you see, Jesus didn't fail in his mission like you and I did, like Adam and Eve did, like every other man and woman who has ever walked on planet Earth has. Yes, he came and he became one of us. He was willing to be made lower than the angels like us for a time. But Jesus Christ pursued obedience to his father and he was crowned with glory and honor, not in the way you would expect him to be, but in the exact opposite way that you would expect him to be because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone Right? That's so counterintuitive to us that that is the way in which Christ would be crowned with glory and honor. But it is through his suffering that his glory was most clearly seen. It is through his suffering, through the scourging he received with lashes on his back that made his back look like ground meat when he was spit upon and mocked by the Roman soldiers, when he had the crown of thorns forced on his head, mocking him and humiliating him, when the nails were driven through his wrist and his feet as he hung on the cross, barely able to breathe. But of course, none of that came close to the intense experience of suffering when he took on the wrath that you and I deserve. When, when the, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus in your place and in my place. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us, for our sake, 
he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On that cross, Christ was treated as if he was the sinner and he drank the cup of wrath that we deserved to the bottom. And it is through this suffering of death that Christ is crowned with glory and honor because it is through the suffering of his death that he accomplished the purpose the Father sent him to accomplish, which that is the redemption of his people, the restoration and rescue of his people so that all who trust in Jesus Christ can live with him for all eternity. You see, verse 9 says that he tasted death for everyone. His death reached beyond just the people of Israel. It reached to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue. This death is now for everyone who will trust in Jesus Christ. It is by the grace of God that he tasted that death for everyone. He defeated death itself that we might live with him in the power of his resurrection. And because he accomplished the Father's will through his death on the cross, he is crowned with glory and honor, which is exactly what Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say to us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, because he suffered on the cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus was obedient and victorious. Father's purpose as mankind fell to accomplish the Father's purpose. And because Christ is victorious, because he was obedient, because he lived a perfect and righteous life, we will one day now join him in the new heavens and the new earth where all things will be subjected to him. And because all things will be subjected to him and we now are attached to him and belong to him, all things will also be subjected to us in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will enjoy creation perfectly. No more death. No more weeping. No more sin struggles. We will finally see him as he is because you see as verse 5 reminds us, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It is Jesus. And it belongs to him. And therefore, everyone who belongs to him will get to experience the glories of that world to come. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Listen, let's get really practical with this for a moment. When we look around at the world, we have every reason to feel desperately hopeless. Right? We have every reason to be filled with anxiety and worry and depression, right? It should not surprise us. And it is tragic, and I grieve over it, the, the, the depression and anxiety that, that so many people in our world struggle with and believers struggle with. And we're here for you if you're struggling with that. Don't hear me saying otherwise. But if you fix your gaze on the world, if your eyes are set on the world, 
you will always be filled with anxiety and worry and depression. And the only hope, the only rescue is to do what verse 9 says we need to do. And that is to see Jesus. To look to him. To fix our eyes on Christ. To fix our eyes on things above where Christ is. And be reminded that he is the victorious one. The yes, the world is broken, but Jesus has come to redeem it. The yes, we are broken and sinful and fallen, but Jesus has come to be victorious and obedient when we couldn't be. And so because Jesus is the victorious one, we have every reason in the world to keep our eyes fixed on him and to be filled with hope and to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. You see, the rest of Hebrews is going to continually, continually remind us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We will be commanded in Hebrews 12 to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Even when we look around and all seems broken and hopeless, we have been told the truth. And there is a glorious world to come that we will all experience because of the victory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use your word uh, this morning, Father, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Father, it's so easy to look around at the brokenness of the world, to see just how far it is from how you created it to be how sin has ruined and ravaged everything. And Father, it's so easy to be caught up in the darkness and despair of this world. So Father, I pray that even right now, this very moment, that your spirit would be at work in us, giving us eyes to see the glories of Christ, giving us eyes to see the glories of his victory on the cross, that he achieved what we could not that his obedience will stand in our place, that his death will stand in our place, and that we will one day join him in all of his glory in this world that is to come. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and that we would call others to do the same, that we would call our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family, that we would call them to look to Jesus, that they would turn to him and hope and repent of their sin and turn to Christ for their salvation. So Father, we pray that you would accomplish great things among us and through us as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.